Hello from Cybrary, and welcome to the show. If you've been enjoying the Cybrary podcast or 401 Access Denied, then make sure to like, follow, and subscribe so that you don't miss any future episodes. We'd love to hear from you. Join the discussion by leaving us a comment or review on your platform of choice or emailing us at podcast at cybrary.it. From all of us at Cybrary, thank you and enjoy the show. Ready to defend your organization against the widespread policy kit vulnerability that experts are comparing to the Log4j flaw? In this episode of the Cybrary podcast, Raymond Evans, CEO of SciDef Labs, discusses his latest Cybrary course on Polkit CVE 2021-4034. By exploiting this flaw, just how easy is it to gain root access on a target system? What can we learn from this vulnerability about the value of penetration testers and open source software? Find out in this episode and in Ray's newest course. Hello, and welcome to the Cyberary Podcast. I'm Will Carlson, the Director of Content, and I'm really excited today to be joined with Ray Evans of SciDef Labs to talk a little bit today about the recent vulnerability and exploit associated with PollKit, PolicyKit, and the PwnKit exploit that goes along with it. Uh, really exciting because Ray's developed a course covering that material on Cyberary as well, but we're here today just to talk about it generally, its impact, why this is an important vulnerability, and Ray's understanding about it as well. Welcome to the podcast, Ray. It's great to have you. Welcome to the SciDef Cybersecurity. I mean, oh, that's the wrong podcast. I'm so sorry, Will. <laughs> no, it's it's wonderful to be here. Uh, yeah, great vulnerability. Well, terrible vulnerability. Great thing to talk about. I'm excited to be here with you. Uh, I haven't done a podcast in a, in a hot minute. We had the SciDef Cybersecurity Podcast way back. Um, and now, uh, you know, time to do something with you, Will. That's great. I'm looking forward to it. So, Ray, why don't you tell the audience a little bit about, you know, kind of who you are and what you do and, and how you're connected to Cyberary? I am the uh, founder of SciDef Labs. We have had a heck of a journey at SciDef Labs. We originally started out just as a SciDef Cybersecurity Podcast. Um, and then we moved into CTFs, Capture the Flag events, and went around to various conferences doing Capture the Flag events. And then uh, one of the old uh, founders of Cybrary, uh, Ryan, reached out to me and was like, hey, I like the idea of, of, of CTFs. Can you guys make some CTF content for us? Uh, so we developed a, a platform from the ground up specifically for... Cybrary, uh, so that way Cybrary could have CTF style content. Um, mm -hmm. And so then we partnered with Cybrary oof, almost three, four years now ago. I think that's about right from my, my yeah. recollection, sure. Um, and so we evolved from the, the SciDef Cybersecurity Podcast to SciDef Labs LLC. Um, and now we make on demand. Uh, content, uh, lab content, all web browser based content, um, for Cybrary. And, uh, we are actually also soon here moving into the world of, uh, penetration testing and assessments as well to, to add under our belt. So that'll be fun. That's great. Um, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit, Ray, about, you know, kind of the timeline of this vulnerability, who discovered it and, and why it's relevant uh, today. What makes it so interesting to you? Yeah. Um, so this vulnerability was originally discovered by the Qualys 
uh, research team. I hope I'm, I'm saying that uh, correct there. And if my recollection is correct, they discovered it around November 18th of 2021. Um, and they, this vulnerability gives attackers the ability to elevate their privileges uh, to root on almost any Linux system. Uh, I say almost because if you're running Dockerized containers, I did discover that um, you know Docker does not, by default, install the policy kit software, which uh, <laughs> is a software that is vulnerable to this exploit. Um, so yeah, if you have any Docker containers out there and you're not explicitly installing policy kit, then you're pretty safe from this, which is awesome. Yeah, boy, but that makes a lot of security professionals pretty happy, particularly those in the DevSecOps space. So that, that's really great. Um, yeah, it's my understanding that, you know, PolicyKit, also known as PolyKit, is kind of the underlying software here. And it I, I think it does a couple of things from what I understand, right? So it allows non-privileged users and processes to communicate to privileged processes in Linux operating systems. But that's not so much the issue here with this vulnerability, is it? It, it has more to do with PolicyKit using some software within it called PKExec, to execute commands with escalated privileges. Is that, is that correct, right? Yeah, so um, the, the PKExec tool within PolicyKit um, is actually what is vulnerable to this exploit. More, most specifically, there is an argument within the PKExec um, that has a null value that it, it takes advantage of. So the beginning of PKExec's main function processes the command line arguments for PKExec uh, and searches for the program uh, to be executed. If the number of command line arguments is zero, which means uh, if the argument list argv that uh, is passed to execv is empty, um, then the argv value becomes null. That causes some... Um, some memory write issues. Uh, it's, I, I, mm-hmm. I'm sure your your user, your listeners here, don't want me to go in depth of the line by line code. Um, <laughs> no, probably not. But to, to make sure I understand, correct me if I'm wrong here, Ray. So basically, there's PKExec is expecting an, a series of arguments to execute, and when one of those arguments is null, it causes that memory corruption error and, and uh, allows attackers and our adversaries to insert code of their own choosing into that particular spot. And in this case, they've used that to exploit and escalate privileges from the non-privileged up to root. Yeah, so you explained it very well there. Um, the the value that is then put into where the executable file is supposed to be is written out of bounds to another variable, which then that out of bounds write is what allows for uh, the process execution and the uh, elevation of privileges. Yeah, so really down in the technical weeds there for a bit, but I think you know, suffice it to say, we could summarize that and and just safely say that for relatively simple proof of concept code, right? So I, I know the the timeline, as I understand it, from the Qualys team was they gave initial advisory of having discovered this, like as you mentioned on November eighteenth of last year, um, and then on January eleventh there was a new advisory from them, all following you know the proper disclosure channels, right? So they're not giving advisories to the world, but to the concerned parties. But on, on January the 11th, they give an advisory and they, they put out a patch. And then now we're here on the backside of the coordinated release on January 25th. But in that relatively short period of time, right, Qualys already had 
viable proof of concept code and was able to exploit that thing. And now that it's in the wild, that there's a number of other proof of concept code as well. So this is a relatively easy vulnerability to exploit for somebody that obviously knows what they're doing and can write those things. But even more interesting than that, I, I think, you know, we've even been able to show this is just a really simple one to exploit just by pulling the code off off offline from any GitHub repo that you can find it in and, and elevating from a non-root user to a root user. Um, is that what you guys have seen, Ray? Oh, yeah. The, the code for this is very, very small. Less than like 16 lines of code can be written to actually exploit this vulnerability. It's really, really small to be able to also transport onto a victim's machine as well. Like 300 bytes, 290 bytes, something like that. So if an attacker wanted to sneak this onto the onto a machine over a series of, of chunks to make it even smaller, it would be almost impossible to find on a network breaking it up into, into smaller chunks and getting it onto a victim machine, which is absolutely bonkers that you have such a powerful exploit that is so small. Yeah, no doubt. And, you know, at, at least this is a vulnerability that's just recently shown up and hasn't been in the wild for what? How, how many years, Ray? <laughs> oh. um, I believe it goes all the way back to 2010, 2011 timeframe. Yeah, that's a long time ago, right? So uh, in, in, in my quick bit of research, uh, it, this showed to go back to the original commit for Polkit and PK exec. So this, this thing's not, not new. It's been sitting under our noses for a really long time. Yeah, it's insane that A, it's been sitting on our noses for so long, and B, somebody didn't find it even quicker. For all we know, actually, somebody could have found this quicker and could have been using this in the wild for many, many years and just not uh, not caught by anybody because nobody was looking for it. Yeah, the, the bad guys aren't following responsible disclosure rules, are they? <laughs> they, they are not. That's really wild. Um, yeah, I've just been there for so long. This makes me think back, you know, obviously, I, I think, you know, the audience is definitely going to remember it's not been too long ago. And I know we still have some some SMEs in our network that are still dealing with Log4j. But I, I think why this feels similar to me is it's just another vulnerability that's a part of a library that's so widely used across, I mean, pretty much most Linux distributions affected by this for over 12 years. That's That's a huge swath of you know, what we all come to know and love and use on the internet and applications. And like I mentioned, the DevOps crew and, you know, it's just all over the place. Um, and to have been there for so long because it's part of a, a library, I wonder, you know, Ray, what are your thoughts on, do you expect we'll, be, we'll see more and more of these kind of uh, exploits for libraries that are included in broad places all over the internet? Uh, I would say yes, because... This highlights our need as an information security community to be uh, performing pen testing and code review of these libraries. Um, I, I very much see in the near future penetration testers, bug bounty individuals going more after these libraries to find these critical exploits because HomeKit highlights like, hey, here's this exploit that's super powerful that's been under our noses. And anybody could have found it at any time had they just taken the time to actually look and done the the, the fuzzing or, or the testing of it. 
Yeah, no doubt. I think it's it's really interesting too, right? So if, if I was out and was going to be doing some OSINT and looking for some of these types of things on the web, it's not too difficult to go looking at GitHub repo or repo pulls to see some of the most popular libraries that are included in so many platforms. And as you mentioned, just begin doing a little bit of fuzzing and seeing what the weak spots are. I I fully expect we're going to see a whole lot more of this as, as time goes on. It's just so easy to know what's a big area of impact, right? Yeah, it, it is uh, really hard to, to predict what a big area of impact would be. Um, and, you know, it is scary that this exploit, uh, this vulnerability was out there for, for so long. But um, it's also kind of exciting because it highlights the need for education in the fields of penetration testing. Um, and it also highlights the needs for pen testing companies or, or companies in general to invest more money in training the individuals to create these experts to go find these bugs before the bad guys do. Yeah, no doubt. And I wonder from a from a pen test perspective, that's interesting, right? So um, I guess as a pen tester, you would just begin, I know Qualys' tool is already scanning for these things, so they're kind of already a step ahead. But as a pen tester that's kind of responding to these things early, I'd imagine you'd just be adding these tools to your toolkit um, and, and looking for these things as part of the normal the process of things. Oh, yeah, most definitely. Pwnkit now, 100% is going to be one of my automated items that I add to a script of, of different things to run to see if I can get quick root or not. Because if I can get quick root, game over. I'm done. Time to leave. <laughs> yeah, one and done, right? Well, I mean, imagine you're going to have a really hard time with that because the cybersecurity industry and the, the IT space is so good at making sure everything is patched and up to date, right? The cybersecurity and infosec industry <laughs> tries their best the problem is giant corporations that don't want to invest in a good information security SOC type of organization within themselves to find these vulnerabilities within their networks or organizations that have such legacy equipment mm-hmm. um, that are so ingrained in the processes that they actually can't take that equipment off. I, I knew... Um, a gift card processing company. Uh, I'm going to not say what state or city that it's in because it'll probably give it away. But um, there was a company that basically took the the gift cards uh, that were used at stores and they were the middleman for the transactions. And I was sitting one day uh, chatting with some of their, their individuals in their company and they had kind of leaked to me, oh yeah, we're still running Windows XP service pack too on our uh, most critical systems here that directly process the gift cards. And I was like, wait a second. You know, like MSO8067 is like super easy to pop on that. And at any time, anybody can get a foothold in and just start siphoning money from you all. And they're like, yeah, but we can't do anything because the software that we use for that processing the company that made it doesn't exist anymore. Mm-hmm. And we can't update our systems because anything else other than Windows XP Service Pack 2, um, the software that we use breaks. It's so funny that you mentioned Windows XP. I was going to see what operating system you ended up on. And I was going to point out that it's not been too many years ago until, you know, banks were updating ATMs that still, when they would have error screens, would have Windows XP error screens. So... 
um, it, it is slow to move those things. And in all fairness, I mean, you, you said it, right? Uh, the cybersecurity and the, and the IT folks out there in the audience, it, it's a hard world, right? You get legacy programs added in, you get things that weren't built with extensibility in mind. You've got third-party libraries all over the place so that organizations can move with velocity and get things developed and out the door. And it's just really interesting, as I mentioned earlier, to see you know how many of these new attack vectors are coming up because it very clearly seems to me, at least, that adversaries are looking for those really high-impact libraries. You know, instead of targeting a single organization, why not target something that thousands of organizations are likely using um, and get in that way? It's just it's a really interesting climate. Um, and again, for this vulnerability to be so prevalent in Linux across so many systems is uh, really worrying. I, I think the good part, though, is you know to circle back on the, on the good side of this, if there is one, is that... Um, you know, tell us a little bit about um, what you've come to understand about the mitigations for this particular vulnerability. So thankfully, the mitigations are really, really easy. Uh, that anybody who's running the information security or, or vulnerability management for any company uh, doesn't have to go up to their management and beg for money for <laughs> anything. Um, there's two ways of, of mitigating this vulnerability. The first is you can just run your updates on your Linux system. So uh, apt update or yum update or DNF update, you know, whichever you have um, to update the entire system. Or if you can't do that because it there something might break on the system because you have a legacy piece of equipment or something, um, you can just do an apt install of policy kit one, uh, policy kit, all one word, uh, dash one. And then that'll update policy kit uh, individually and it's fixed. Uh, it's really awesome because uh, in order to patch the system, you just update. You don't have to download any additional piece of software and take it from uh, computer to computer to computer uh, on a thumbstick to try to update or something like that. Additionally, if you can't force an update on uh, your network because of legacy equipment or you know, fear of something like uh, potentially breaking, you can easily just run chmod0755 against the PK exec uh, executable, which is in user bin typically, um, to strip PK exec of the set UID bit as a temporary fix. Mm, yeah, so you're just uh, yeah, changing the permissions of that particular executable. That's great. That's that is relatively simple. And I know. I think some people, they like to thumb their nose at uh, open source software, right? And then some would say that this vulnerability has been in that in that that repo for over 12 years, and this is why open source software doesn't work. And I think it's funny, though, the fact, in my opinion, that this, this patch is out there as quick as it was is also, you know, one of the benefits of the open source community. I wonder if you have uh, opinions on that line of thinking, Ray. I love open source. Open source all the things. Yeah, I would I would argue, um, just like you, that because it is open source, we were able to get a a patch very quickly. Um, not only were we able to get a patch very quickly, but uh, individuals were able to run uh, generate all kinds of different scanning code that you can just run on your network um, to to identify the the vulnerability as well. Um, Open source will always benefit the community, the information security community, DevOps community, 
um, by giving people the ability to review the code and not only find the bad stuff, but also find the good stuff and how to fix it. Yeah, it's a really counterintuitive thing, I think, for a lot of people. You know, security by obscurity is is still reigns supreme for a lot of folks as they, they you know, think closed source is better. But I think your point's spot on that, you know, I, I'm certain, I would assume that Qualys was able to move as fast as they were because they knew exactly what they were looking for. They knew exactly what the code was doing that was being taken advantage of, and they didn't have to lob a vulnerability that they found off to an organization and kind of wait on a response. They were able to identify it, act on it, and come up with a proposed solution, and then get that solution rolled out relatively quickly. I mean, you know, November 18th, all the way through to January 11th for a patch to be in hands while we're waiting to do responsible disclosure, that's pretty quick. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, all that Qualys had to do to identify this vulnerability is look through uh, lines 534 of the code to lines 568 and lines 610 to 640. And they were able to find it just by looking through the lines of code, uh, which is awesome. Yeah. So much faster, um, faster to identify, faster to patch. And then, you know, again, on the timeline, so January 11th was when the final advisory and the proposed patch was put out. And then we wait a little while for coordinated release, which basically means we've gotten everybody to get their act in order, patches ready to go, vulnerability is going to be eliminated in a couple of months. We wait a couple of weeks, we disclose, and now we're ready for everybody to go ahead and begin mitigating this problem. Not, not, Patching it really, not mitigating, patching it and getting rid of it completely. That's uh, if there's not a testament to open source that's better than that. I don't know what is. Yeah, and and the fact that it actually got patched is a testament to its open sourceness. Because uh, the, over the years, there has been stories of uh, individuals who have found vulnerabilities in non-open source code and reported it responsibly to the organizations, and uh, the organizations have given the individuals a cease and desist and kind of covered up the the fact that the vulnerability exists with open source, that's not a thing that a, a company can really do. Yeah, that, that makes sense. I, I wonder, <laughs> Microsoft's gotten a little bit of a black eye lately um, for some of their patching that hasn't patched anything. <laughs> You know, we're, we're three and four patches in and, and security researchers are still finding ways around some of the original problems. And so far, at least with this particular one, and it's not had a lot of dwell time with the patches out there, but I'd say two weeks is plenty long enough for an adversary that's determined to have found a new way around it. And I haven't seen a single report of that being the case here. So a really interesting difference between open and closed source, in my opinion. What do you expect is next, Ray, um, for vulnerabilities like these? Um, I guess, do you think, is the process working? I guess circling back to open source, is the process working? Um, is, did we do exactly what we wanted to do? Do you think the fact that it took 12 years to find, we could have tightened that up and that could have gone faster? I mean, what, what do you think are the lessons learned here for open source as a, as a practice? I think the processes are getting better. Not all of the processes work, um, harkening back to what I said earlier about how some uh, bug bounty individuals have gotten their hands slapped and gotten cease and desist or um, actually have gotten threats of being sued. Um, but with bug bounty programs out there, such as HackerOne and some others, 
Um, the process is getting better. The community is building. Um, the methodologies for identifying these vulnerabilities are, are growing and being shared um, a lot more as well. So I think we're only going to see it get better over the next couple of years. And we're only going to see the vulnerabilities get identified and patched uh, even quicker with open source code libraries. Yeah, no, that's great. Um, you also mentioned earlier, you said something that got me to thinking about, you know, you mentioned penetration testers kind of poking on these things and organizations having really healthy pen test programs. Um, I wonder, you know, what's your thought from a development perspective, right? So there are so many third-party libraries managed by so many different people being regularly consumed in larger bodies of code. What what is what's a developer to do? What do you think is the solution for really knowing kind of the inventory of the landscape of all the libraries that are in your code? Is I'm sure pen testing is an answer, and that may be your top vote. But I wonder, you know, in your mind, like what are three tactics that an organization can use to get better handle on that? Because we know those third-party libraries are all over the place. Automated fuzzing. So you don't have to be a seasoned pen tester um, as a, a DevOps individual. There are tools out there that you can just throw your code at and it will automatically um, test it for you. Um, mm-hmm. doesn't necessarily make you a pen tester, but you know, you're, you're auditing your code, uh, which is a good thing. So do those code audits. Bring in a third-party individual to take a look at your code. Uh, I've met a lot of uh, coders and, and DevOps who believe that their code is perfect and all the libraries they're using are perfect and nothing can go wrong. And as soon as they get into the hands of a third-party individual, their, uh, their code breaks, uh, they, some kind of vulnerability is found, um, and I, I see the developer's heart break a little bit when that happens. <laughs> so, you know, if you bring them in even closer... Uh, earlier uh, in in the process of development, it, it is only going to help you out. Um, and then uh, some self research uh, on the libraries that you are using. Um, it's it's important to understand potential threats that already exist out there. And so, if you have a, a set of libraries that you're pulling from, just do some quick Google searches and see if anything uh, pops up as. Uh, potentially uh, malicious or, or dangerous for you to use from those libraries. I wonder if it would be too simple to assume, and I think all of those are really great uh, pointers, but is it too simple to assume that it's kind of just do the basics? <laughs> it is do the basics, but you know, there's a, a thing I preached a while back called the, the triad of fail, right? There's three things that are going to make uh, your code fail. And that's uh, time, money, and skill, right? Your company's not going to want to put a whole bunch of money into your code analysis. Um, maybe, you know, not all companies are bad. Um, a lot of times products get rushed. So time's a factor there. And then um, many organizations want just quick code and they don't want to put a whole bunch of time into training their individuals. So there's a lack of skill. With that time, skill, and money triad, uh, you you have your your triad of fail. Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely spot on. I, I I've always you know heard preached to me that you can do anything with enough time and enough money, um, and I think that, that the assumption there is that the money can buy you the skill, which is you know maybe a, a decent assumption. But 
it is interesting, right? I think there's a ton of tools, a lot of tools, a lot of them open source tools and free tools provided for, to your point, fuzzing. It's just a matter of learning the tools and baking that into your process. The other terms that were coming to mind as you were talking, the big one was security by design. You know, when you said get them involved earlier in the process, um, I think that's really important, right? So the earlier you can get those reviews, the sooner you can respond to them and you're not, you know, neck deep in code dependencies that are dependent upon this third-party library that now you have to rip out because it's not secure. And then an organization gets into a decision point. You know, do we accept the risk because of what we've got into this or do we try to refactor and and pull that particular code out? And the sooner you can catch that in the process, you're so much better off if you can really bake in that security uh, by design into the process. Would you agree with that, Ray? 100%. 100%. Um, and And... Some people listening to this may think, oh, I'm, I'm advocating for hiring of a pen tester in an organization. And that's not necessarily the case. Uh, there's the, the bug bounty programs that you can put your code into and you can let the community go to work. Instead of having one individual, you can have hundreds and thousands of individuals out there uh, pen testing your code and sending you the results. So if you bake that into your process, um, you, can, you can make your, your code uh, better, quicker, with a lot more eyes on it. Yeah, agreed. I know there's a bunch of people in my my personal network that are, are, you know, I think hopefully now, all things going their way, finally beginning to wrap up and being done with responding to Log4j. And again, don't take it that we're being critical of any of these libraries. I mean, things happen, things change, technology moves and changes so quickly. Um, stuff is going to happen. I think that, you know, again, some would argue that 12 years is way too long for a dwell time for this thing, but it's been identified and patched relatively quickly. But I think as you build that security by design into the process, it all just goes so much faster, as, as we mentioned already, that there's a lot to be said for that. There's a lot to be said for open source tools. There's a lot to be said for tools like from vendors like Qualys that now can go out and look for this particular vulnerability. And again, my, my argument would be that those in my network that are just now wrapping up, getting done with responding to Log4j, <laughs> if we could have identified some of those vulnerabilities much earlier before Log4j was a part of everything in the world, seemingly, um, it certainly would be a lot less expensive. And I know a lot of professionals would have gotten a heck of a lot more sleep over the past two or three months. You know, I think the quote of the faster you can fail, the faster you can su succeed mm -hmm. kind of comes to mind here. Um, another thing we have to do in, in these organizations is... Um, take the stress off of the, the coders, the DevOps individuals a little bit and build in a culture where the team has the freedom to fail. You know? Yeah, I think that's really important, right? And, and obviously the goal from that would be to learn as quickly as you possibly can, but you know, allowing for that kind of experimentation and that early, uh, early failure is, is really, really important. Yeah, so many individuals in DevOps want their code to be perfect the first time and not fail um, and have zero vulnerabilities because of stress from higher management pushing down. But if the higher management pushes that culture of, all right, we're going to test your code. And if you find if vulnerability is found, that's okay. We'll fix it and we'll push out an update. Um, I think that we would see a lot less of these vulnerabilities publicly because they'd be getting caught uh, during the DevOps cycle. Yeah, I agree. I think it'll be interesting too to see, I know a number of organizations and there are a number of compliance standards that require this, but for organizations to have really mature 
uh, third-party risk programs. And I know, at least in my experience from the, the PCI side of things, that has primarily to do with, um, you know, third-party vendors that are inserting themselves into, obviously from a PCI perspective, part of the PCI data flow. But I, I wonder, Ray, if you have any opinions kind of looking in, in your crystal ball, or are you aware of any programs now that are beginning to bake in third-party libraries as part of their holistic third-party risk program? I do not. My crystal ball does not see into that that realm, unfortunately. So I, I can't give uh, an opinion on that one, unfortunately. I, I'll go on record for saying that I fully expect if, if there are not organizations already doing it, I, I would bet that that will become a pretty regular part of that. Because, I mean, you know, uh, as well as I do, Ray, that so much about information security is about reducing organizational risk. And how that translates for me and you is that reduces the risk to mine in your data and transactions that are flowing through all of these organizations. So I think this will become a bigger and a bigger issue as we see more and more of these vulnerabilities cropping up affecting these third-party libraries. I just personally, from a, a risk management perspective, I don't know that there's a way around it. Time will tell. We'll, we, we'll, get, we'll have another podcast here in six months, Ray, and we'll follow up and see how, how well my prediction has held up. I mitigate my data risk by printing everything off and then deleting all presents. And all my money is kept in gold bars in my backyard, buried in, in uh, coffee cans. <laughs> I'm kidding. Uh, that works kidding. unless somebody brings the backhoe to your backyard, right? <laughs> Which you might know. That, that is a funny one, right? So I'm off on a tangent now a little bit. I, I, I think of you know some of my elderly grandparents who are always so scared about using their credit cards online, but they're happy to put a check or three or four or five in their mailbox out front and put the flag up on their mailbox, right? It's like, hey, come look at me. I've got outgoing mail. And if you want to steal my checking account number, <laughs> just pull the letters out of my box and you'll be good to go. Yeah, Perception I, of risk is such a funny thing. That physical snail mail does have such a, a higher risk of individuals uh, just getting your data anywhere in, in, in the, the, the loop, be it from your mailbox or at a processing station or the mailman themselves just, oh, look at that. I'm just going to take that and slip that in my pocket. Yeah, it's interesting, right? There's a reason that it's, if I remember right, it's actually illegal to send cash money in the mail. So there must be a reason for that if I had to suspect. It's illegal, but scammers still trick people every day into doing it. Yeah, no doubt. Um, I guess, Ray, what are any parting thoughts here on, on how the audience should be thinking about this uh, vulnerability in the exploit with PwnKit? What you think next steps are for them? So if you were to give, you know, kind of three must-do steps, or maybe there are four, what, what next steps should people be doing in relation to this particular vulnerability? identify any potential machines on your network that may have this vulnerability. I think that's a good one. I'll interrupt you. And are there, you have to go out and buy thousands of dollars worth of tools to do that, right? You do. You do. Uh, you need uh, the, this top tier exploit kit that uh, an APT made to be able to do that. I'm kidding. Uh, there's actually a bunch of scanners uh, that people have written on GitHub um, One's called Poem Kit Hunter. Um, or if you want, you can write your own little bash script that uh, will go out, SSH into your boxes, and then check your version. That's all you need to do to identify it, really, is to check the version. It's real simple. Great. So 
go out and identify any machines in your environment that might be at risk. What's next? Patch them. Do, do we skip the step where we make sure that we can patch safely? Just just uh-huh. go in and patch them every system. Well, now you have to do it on a Friday at about four, right? Okay, I will revise my steps. So identify, <laughs> get authority slash permission to patch, and then patch your systems. It's as easy, three simple steps, right? Three simple steps. Clearly, we, we are, we're being a little bit tongue-in-cheek. Um, it's never quite that simple. Uh, it's, it's always a little more involved. But it is, you know, I think comforting for this particular vulnerability. As we've talked, it's relatively simple, like you mentioned, Ray, to identify. There are a number of free tools to help you in that endeavor. Your organization almost certainly has uh, policies and procedures around how, making, how to make sure that you can patch things. If not, it may be really simple just to go ahead and patch it. Um, make sure you have good backups first. Um, and then you go in and you patch the thing, right? Because the, the vulnerability has already been patched for in pretty much every Linux distribution available. And if you pretty can't patch it, just chmod it and get that set UID bit off of there. Yep. And then you can sleep at night. You can report upstream that the vulnerability is taken care of, and you can wait for the next one to hit the ground running. Because <laughs> there will be a next one. Give it oh, a absolutely. month or two. There's going to be a next one. Absolutely, there will. Um, there'll be another third-party library with a vulnerability coming up, I, I would imagine, pretty soon. It's only been, what, like, a, what a, maybe two months now since Log4j hit the ground. But those are just the ones that were big in the news, and there, you know there's been others other than that. Thanks so much for joining us tonight, Ray. I appreciate you taking the time to, to chat about Polkit, Pwnkit, and what that kind of means for the world. Really appreciate you giving some next steps for folks as to how to make sure their environments are safe from this particular vulnerability so they don't have to lose sleep over it and they can be proactive about it. And I hope everybody's looking forward to the course that we have about that particular vulnerability uh, in the platform. I know it was exciting for me to get to go through it and get my hands on the vulnerability and truly see how easy it really was to exploit. We always appreciate your time, Ray, and your partnership here with us at Cyberary. Thanks so much. And everybody, have a great day and a good rest of the week. Take care. Cyberary, the premier cybersecurity skill development platform, is empowering individuals and teams to secure the future of technology. See why 3 million people have already signed up when you visit www.cybrary.com. Dot IT.